0: Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexCocurrency.com. Your route to great-rate travel money at participating credit unions.
1: Good morning. On Tuesday evening, after a six-hour meeting, the FAI made their decision not to renew Vera Powell's contract as manager of the Irish women's team. As they awaited that decision, textures to drive time made their feelings known.
2: Well, the text line is full of support for Vera Pau, Cormac, um, and that's all we're getting, really, to 5151. I'll yeah. just give you a sense of some of what we're getting. Uh, one person says, uh, are we mad even thinking of letting Vera go? Does the FAI think we can get anyone better? She's been great and she fully deserves another chance.
0: I well, you hear this from Bob. She did miracles with the team, almost drew with the hosts and Canadians, but the FAI could fire her. What's new, says Bob. Let mm. us know what you think about VP's future to 5151.
1: However, it was not to be, and no reason for the decision was given by the FAI. On Thursday evening, pushback from Pow.
0: Just a moment ago, a statement has been put into my hand, and I must say it's remarkable. Well, within the last few minutes, Vera Pau has issued a lengthy statement in response to that decision. She highlights many uh, happy memories from her time as a coach, but makes some stinging criticisms of the FAI. And let me read you some relevant passages. Vera Pau says, despite committing to issuing an offer to me, the FAI reconsidered their stated position and I never received the promised offer. I believe the FAI made some major mistakes by directly overruling the tasks of the coach. Unfortunately, says Vera Pau, trust broke down between me and certain people in the FAI. I believe that the review process which the association has carried out was flawed and that the outcome was predetermined, she says. She goes on to say, Indeed, some discussions were held with players and staff before and during the World Cup, which undermined my position and had an impact on our team building process. That is perhaps for another day, she says.
1: On Morning Ireland yesterday, this summation from Mark McCadden, soccer correspondent with the Irish Star.
3: Serious questions have been raised um, by Vera's uh, statement yesterday. It, it really is, a, a, she has really come out swinging here.
1: And later with Claire, this reaction from former Ireland player Jackie McCarthy O'Brien.
4: Disgraceful Claire. Absolutely disgraceful. Um, we get to our first major tournament. It's 50 years in the making. We have a successful manager and she gets sacked. You know, it's, 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 it beggars belief. It's like eating bread is soon forgotten.
1: And a constant hum in the background to all of this, the relationship between the manager and the players. How much of their input had fed into the FAI's decision.
5: Also with Claire Gavin Cooney of the 42.ie. But what do you think it says about her relationship with the players, that they're not mentioned here?
2: I mean, the, the relationship is broken to be quite honest with you. I think that was evident, that was probably evident in the gaps in public statements and the lack of full-throated support from players during the World Cup and it's it's been evident since. I mean, there have been no kind of public statements on Instagram or social media from the players thanking Power for her time. We know there were significant complaints from players to the FAI um, about Pau's preparations and methods around the World Cup um, and obviously, and she doesn't really, you know, thank, doesn't say a whole lot about the players. She does praise the quality the players at the start of the statement Um, but yeah and says like the team is in a good position to build on success now and go on and and be successful but uh, no there's no there's no individual thank you to any individual players certainly
1: However that view it's fair to say held by many would be tempered somewhat by Vera Powell herself Yesterday she gave a lengthy interview to RTE soccer correspondent Tony O'Donoghue Clips of which were on the news at one and drive time and she talked about how she saw her relationship with the players.
6: Well, everybody knows that the bond between me and the players was was so good. And there was space for friction and there was space for uh, discussion and there was space for joy and there was space for laughter. Um, But now I just felt the players drifting away um, in in their, their, their looks to me. And in the way that they were dealing with it. And I found out that behind my back, all things were happening. Do
7: you feel, do you feel betrayed?
6: Yes, I, f- I felt betrayed, yeah. yeah.
7: The players were asked so many times in the various press uh, opportunities um, to give you backing, or they were asked about mm-hmm. their attitude towards you. And they declined to give that backing. I'm sure it was difficult for them, I have to say. Yeah. But nonetheless, how did that make you feel?
6: So, um, one player was really upset about how her remarks were put in the in the press, mm-hmm. um, so I went to her because I was told that she was really upset because she just said what she had to say and uh, and I said, "Listen, I know how you feel about me don't worry. I know what's happening here." Um, I beg you, don't worry, it doesn't touch me because I know how you feel about me.
1: And what about her own management style, which had come under some criticism?
6: I found out that it was said that I was rigid in, in my philosophy and old-fashioned, whereas this program is the most progressive and advanced program that, that you can do, and I don't know any coach who's, who's dealing with it like that. But um, I was actually told to put weightlifting and box-to-box running in because the players wanted that. Whereas I know that that will harm the players if you put that next to the programme that, that we do. Have
7: you ever been called rigid before? Is there something about your personality you feel that might be um, controlling?
6: Well, I, I have studied for 35 years and experienced for 35 years and I have been building this programme for 35 years. Um, it's not that it's always been the same, and I don't want different. It's so different now than it was in South Africa and, and before that. It's been developing and developing, and I've introduced all new things into that program to make it better and better and better. And that, therefore, the effect has been so good.
1: Bira Pow talking to Tony O'Donoghue. Well, joining Cormac on Drive Time to give her reaction, Orla McElroy of the Irish Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday.
0: That's one point that Veer herself makes. She was asking uh, the FAI for uh, some sort of a commitment, uh, some, sign, uh, some sort of uh, answer, yes or no. And she says she didn't even get a month to get her ducks in a row, Orla.
8: Yeah, and I mean, she says now that she's lost, t- lost out in two jobs as a result. She was waiting to hear from the FAI. She seems to be under the impression that she was going to be getting a new deal and as a result was waiting to hear from the FAI on that matter. Like the whole thing dragged on way too long. They were talking about it. They weren't talking about it. Then they were talking about it again. And then it was stalled before she went out to the World Cup. And I think that left her, I mean, she says she felt undermined at the World Cup. I think that's one of the issues that did undermine her because she went out there with everybody knowing that the FAI had taught her about a deal and then decided to pause those talks so I think that does leave her undermined and she says there was issues ongoing with a review out in Australia that made her feel undermined as well that there was um, you know, members of the FAI executive speaking to members of her team and her backroom team mm-hmm. to discuss the manner of the, the um, World Cup
1: campaign And what about the idea that this might be a case of a decisive woman difficult not so much if he's a man though or is that a little too bad? She,
0: she made that point a number of times towards the end of the interview that if it was Pep Guardiola or Dick uh, Advocate or Louis van Haller or so on they wouldn't be treated in this way.
8: Yeah, she's often made this, um, she's often discussed this, that uh, there is a perception of her being um, a strict coach or overbearing and that these things would happen, you know, with a male coach and that there would be no remark passed on them. And it's something she, you know, she's discussed this before previously when the allegations came out from the US about how differently she's treated and how she feels that women coaches are treated entirely differently from male coaches. The male coaches behave in a manner that is far more robust on a day daily basis with their players for example the the, the you know the debate with uh, the sideline issue with Katie McCabe would probably happen regularly in a men's match and wouldn't be past comment on and, and an awful lot was made of that which Vera has now said is is not you know the the mountain that it was it was more of a molehill mm-hmm. she said that she's spoken to Katie that Katie accepts that she has made a mistake you know and the mistake probably was that doing it so publicly um, you know she's within her rights obviously to ask for sub substitutes if she wants to or to you know to give her opinion to the manager but as Vera said at the time she's the manager and it's up to her to decide what what the situation is.
1: However for Irish Times sports columnist Joanna Reardon also on the line football just a tough business
9: you know I know she was very much saying that she wanted the FAI to give her an answer all the way back in March about whether she was going to go ahead or not and if they told her no she was probably going to do the job anyway that was put to her again that's probably an awkward situation you don't want to be involved in like what job would you go into knowing that you're going to be fired in five months time would you say I'm going to go in and do the best I possibly can mm-hmm. you probably might lose a bit of interest after a while Um, but look again it, it, we don't know because that situation has never popped up she was never told no you know at the month of March and I mean it's not exactly a rare thing in sport to be told you might be getting a contract but we'll see how it goes and then it goes back on it you know I mean Ronald Coleman I remember when he took Barcelona in charge for the second time he had a meeting with the president and the president said we'll definitely give you a contract absolutely and a month later he fired him on an airplane um, and they would to meet up again the following month because of the 1992 celebrations and Ronald Coleman said in, in the press I actually don't like him at all um, yeah. so you know that's that could be just the way it goes but you know in terms of our argument with football and HR it kind of didn't really wash either I mean, if you had the likes of Todd Bowley, you know, and he treated Graham Potter, you know, just saying, all right, good luck. I've given you everything. You're actually terrible. Like, that's football. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's very much something as well that, that you know, football and HR don't exactly go hand and hand.
1: Mm hmm. Now the FAI have said that they will not be responding to any of this until the upcoming men's international games. But who knows? Oranges is for halftime at the ready. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Do you find yourself walking around with a ziplock bag of carrot sticks? Or maybe chopped chirito, All to shove into the mouth of either yourself or a loved one. Hungry. Not pretty. And yes, it is a thing.
2: Because there's a couple of people in my life who uh, like suffer from this regularly uh, to the point where I know, you know, if they're acting in a certain Keep way, away. my first question <laughs> will. No, my first question will be, when is the last time you ate? And immediately yeah. this, the whole problem is solved. Like everything has been solved because yeah. it's just a question of a sandwich. That's all we need here and everyone can just move on. But it happens yeah. regularly. So I'm just wondering, is this, you know, is this something that some people suffer from or is it just that some people are less, less aware of, you know, making sure that they eat?
3: I, I I think it's just that we're, we're, we're not very good at eating regularly. And I do mm. think a lot of that is modern lifestyle. And I think people, we tend to think hunger is something that just gives us calories and energy. Um, but the thing is, that feeling of hunger is, is, is it's an aversive signal. It's really unpleasant. And the reason it's unpleasant is that's your brain sending you a message. I need nutrients. I need glucose. Please eat something now or else I'm going to start malfunctioning which really is what happens and we just ignore it and and we really kind of need to get into that thing of listening uh to when we are hungry hungry and thirsty they've kind of evolved for a reason but there is one theory um that you know why is it that you know we get angry uh when we get hungry and from an evolutionary perspective it's thought that um you know when there's a sparsity of food and we're competing for food, it makes more sense for you to be aggressive and angry in your search for food because you're
2: more likely to survive. Although we can tell Cormac right now that that's not the case anymore. Well, hurry up and finish the bloody
0: question.
1: (laughs) That's Dr Sabina Brennan, a psychologist and neuroscientist. And Cormac, yes, hands up. He can be hangry.
0: For me, actually, it feels like I'm in a tunnel with diminishing light when I'm hungry and the darkness is closing in on all of the other priorities. Such a drama queen. No, I swear to God, I swear to God. So it could be arriving at a destination or it could be bringing the kids to school or whatever. the And it just, if I'm hungry, it's just, just get it done or I'm not going to do it until I get a ham sandwich. And that's oh well,
3: that's good. Yeah, I mean, you're, a, you're responding, it's you pathetic. don't get that little red light, do you? Oh, I do. <laughs> that little red flash. I always get yeah. The red yeah I've been there for for, 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 for for different reasons. Hunger doesn't particularly do it to me, but yeah, look what carry a healthy snack around,
10: yeah. Um, yeah, Cormac. do you
3: know, just carry, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of a little personal war here, which you know, a really I'll interesting do... thing. Don't worry, thing on that study. I'll deal yeah, with, with this off
0: I'll deal with after my ham sandwich
1: oh we're all in the middle of that dynamic Sabina you're not alone there with Ray you 2s Adam Clayton he is an ambassador for Elephant in the Room a mental health awareness initiative and he spoke very honestly about melancholy and his own difficulties with alcohol
11: I, I always find it very hard that if one is in a in a in a positive situation, it's very hard to, to then talk about something negative. Mm. And you know, there was a there was a lot of good news in my life, um, but I suppose that the secret was that I was incredibly unhappy and unable to deal with it and accept it. And of course i thought you know alcohol w- w- was the way forward and that that would solve the problem and it was my friend but in the end of course it it wasn't and you know i eventually went into treatment and turned things around and at the time not many musicians were talking about that and you know some musicians had, had come through it i mean obviously a musician like eric clapton who was very public about his recovery um was of support to me and and was an example to me but now i think many more people have come through it and and you know they've they've crashed and burned through alcohol or or or, or other addictions um and it it plays into you know mental health issues mm. and and i think it for me, it always came from a melancholy and, and a low-level depression, and I know people suffer from from very extreme forms of depression where they can't even get out of bed. Um, I, I, to be clear, I wasn't I wasn't in that category, but I, I was suffering enough that I would have days where it was very hard to do anything, um, and you know, if I was working, I could I could you know i could make myself do that and i could get over it but if i wasn't working it was hard to be motivated and and i and for me i had to find good ways good coping mechanisms and i had to find a community of people that i related to and and could talk with and and that was people that i found in in various fellowships and um everyone has to perhaps find their own way but But certainly seeking the help is the first step and the form of help that that works for you is is something that you have to, you know, you have to try.
7: Yeah.
1: Now he is 25 years sober, but he is also still a rock star and the high of performing in front of thousands of people. How do you decompress after that? The
11: energy of of those 80,000 people, and, and that's, you know, that's when you're playing football stadiums, is... It is an amazing thing, and, and it is in and of itself addictive. I think, mm. um, and you hear that and see that time and time again with with artists. Um, it's it's an amazing energy. Uh, I'm I feel like you two is very lucky because we we did not think our career would be as long as it has been. So we've seen it from all sides, and I think we can all you know we've all, we've all had a little bit of madness along the way and i think we can now do the show know that we've we've done a good job and know that we've got to conserve our energy for the next day mm. and i i don't find any kind of i mean it's it is it is what you're used to but i don't find that, that there's any contradiction for me in going mm, yeah I, i'll have a, i'll have a cup of tea i'll enjoy it and i'll think about you know, what's just happened to me. And I'll just let let the energy seep out. You know, I might, depending on where I am, see, you know, some late night chat show or something, which, <laughs> which, which, which sends me off to sleep fairly quickly. <laughs> name it. Name and shame. No.
1: <laughs> first night nerves, on the other hand, they are facing into their first residency at Vegas.
11: I would come to that with the knowledge that the last time i was on stage was 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 2019 that's a long time ago and although you know we've been practicing and rehearsing this show you still or rather i i still think well something could go wrong i could you know i could forget how to play the songs you know <laughs> you fall over, whatever you know nobody could turn up yeah. so yeah. so it's sold, so it's sold that's out that's just so real. you know
12: Adam it's sold out the first the first night sold out so it's highly unlikely that nobody will turn up so you can you can scratch that one off your list <laughs> Well that's true well it's, there,
11: it's, there, it's definitely going to be you know a, a night of sweaty palms yes. and sweaty armpits but, uh, but once you know once you're through the first five or six numbers you forget all of that and uh, it's it's just you know you enjoy the, you, you enjoy the love that's mm. coming off the audience And back in the day would you have drank the first night nerves just to dilute the first night nerves? No, actually I I really didn't like to go on stage in an altered state. Okay. It was more what it was more what happened afterwards. afterwards. It was it was that sense of release, um and and trying to fill that void of of you know, afterwards feeling, you know, you've achieved something. I mean, gosh, you've managed to stand on stage for two hours and play a few tunes, but it feels like you've achieved something <laughs> and, and you want to celebrate. It,
1: Incredibly modest. Now he has always gotten solace from nature. He grew up in Malahide. He liked to wander around the grounds of the castle. But back then, this was a verboten. He wrote the owner a letter.
11: Dear Lord Talbot, you've got some lovely woods, and I really like walking in them um, and collecting, you know, chestnuts and conkers and stuff. You know, surely we could come to an arrangement. So he said, "Yeah, come over for some tea." I, I suppose he wanted to make sure I wasn't going to be carving my name in the trees with a knife or something. But he then said, "Yes, you you can come in whenever you want, and uh, I'll give you a little note. And if the gamekeeper comes after <laughs> you, show him this letter from <laughs> me." <laughs> So I guess it, it comes from there, really. Um, what happens for me, I think, is, you know, you, you look up at those big trees and the light coming through the the green, the greenery and, you know, you feel right. I feel right size. You know, I feel whatever, whatever is tugging at me. Um, and you just go, oh, for goodness sake, you know, l- l- enjoy the day and, and quote yeah. Bono, and just go, it's a beautiful day.
1: And finally, that residency, Larry Mullen, not there, but not their first time. Just have a listen.
11: There was a time a few years ago when when Bono couldn't perform with us, so uh, Bruce Springsteen stepped in. Uh, with... um, uh, um... And <laughs>
12: um... there's one of your best lines, Adam. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which. Which, which was, you know, it's is quite a strange one
11: as well. And, and actually Chris Martin did a turn as well with right, okay. us. So, you know, which is kind of quite, quite an
1: extraordinary thing
11: for, yeah. for you two to play with those people as well. So it, it does happen.
1: Now that's what you call a stand-in. You did ask, Ray. That was Adam Clayton, ambassador with Mental Health Initiative, Elephant in the Room. This has been a week dominated by deaths on our roads. Young people, older people and children, leaving families and communities devastated and bereft. And it is difficult to know how to cover such tragic loss of life on our roads. On Thursday, Claire Byrne spoke to Paula Hillman, Assistant Garda Commissioner with Responsibility for Road Policing, who started by offering her condolences to all of the families of the people who've died on our roads in the past week and this year.
5: We know the investigations into most of those incidents that you mentioned are still ongoing. So I want to talk to you in general terms about what's going on on our roads. And can you tell us as of this morning how many people have died on our roads this year?
4: Just to re-emphasise that, yes. Anything I say from from this time forward, I'm talking in general in general terms, not in, in any specifics. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yes, uh, you know, tragically, we have seen 125 people have been killed in our roads this year, and I, again, we're really conscious that while well, I talk about numbers, every one of those is a family, a community. An empty seat at the table, but to put it in context um, for for your listeners, that's uh, 24 more people from the same period last year from 2022, and if we go back to 2019, the pre-COVID, it's actually 39 more people have been killed on our roads from from 2019, which is before COVID. So we are seeing, as we've moved out of COVID, just those changing. Behaviours on our roads.
1: And Claire asked her just why she believed these figures were so high.
4: I think it's a, a mixture of, 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 of what we know causes. Um, Causes collisions, and then, um, then the, the greater the speed, at times the, the greater the, the, the impact. But, you know, we know people are speeding, and speed limits are not targets; that, that they're there as a guidance, but also take into account the road and weather conditions. And when we look at some of the things we're seeing about speeding, it's it's not people just over the speed limit. Um, you know, if we look at the um, even the, the, the August Bank Holiday weekend, I was looking back on that, and we detected over. 1,700 people speeding during that one bank holiday weekend, but one person was doing more than 200 kilometres an hour. You know, so it's it's not. Oh, I was just over. So speeding, um, drinking, drug driving as well, and um, people taking that risk. Wearing your seatbelt. In terms of fatalities, one in five people uh, have not been wearing their seatbelt, and people being distracted. Those, those are the, those are the key things that cause road traffic. Just, when those, you say distracted, behaviors. is
5: is that uh, by from using their phones in the main?
4: It can be. It can But people can be. Uh, Distracted by other things. For us, yes, there is the the offence of using your mobile phone um, whilst driving. But also, you know, people can be distracted by something else in the car. They can be distracted by something outside. Uh, And we are starting to see um, people, and we have seen it, people um, FaceTiming, watching TV um, as they're driving as well. So, you know, driving is one of, you know, it's one of the most Serious things that, that we do in life, and, and we take it for granted. That, you know, we, we get it behind the wheel of a car and, and we go wherever we're heading, but you know, it, it is one of the most um, important things we do in life in terms of looking out to come home safe and ensure that other road users are safe as well. About that shared responsibility yeah. for everyone using their roads, not just drivers.
1: Assistant Gar the Commissioner with responsibility for road policing, Paula Hillman with Claire. Back in a bit. On Wednesday, Anorak time, Mac in a sack, or perhaps a wee belted number. It was the much-anticipated Electoral Commission report. I know, stop press. But democracy in action, and kind of fascinating. Its recommendation, the number of TDs to increase from 160 to 174. Constituencies increased from 39 to 43, and wait for it... Changes to constituency boundaries. Mm-hmm. Paul Corr is salivating. However, not everyone was happy. On Morning Ireland, Keane McCormack spoke to political analyst Odrin Flynn, who was not in the least impressed with such a small increase in TDs.
7: I do not understand that it. it's the most ridiculous uh, electoral boundary commission I've seen in my lifetime. Um, the commission were allowed to do 172 to 181 they haven't even reached the situation where the population, the population as of today is in fact, falls well short
12: of what the number of seats it should have. Okay, the constitution says there should be on average one TD to represent every 20 to 30,000 yeah. people. 16 of the 43 constituencies have breached the 30,000 30, 30, maximum. Yeah, the
7: 30,000 actually, the 30,000 is per, you know, is constitutions there has to be one TD for every 30,000 people. The, as a whole, it does make that just about. But individual constituencies, 16 of the individual constituencies have variances up to including 8%, which has never happened in the history of the state before. And I have no doubt whatsoever it will lead to court challenges.
1: So was the answer more TDs? Also with Keane, political campaign strategist Dermot Ryan.
12: Is it a case of reading the room here? Is there an appetite for more TDs? Look, I think if you were to
7: ask uh, most person on the street, they wouldn't say to you that they they need more politicians. And I suppose that's going to be a challenge and that's a broader conversation, I think, about how we organise elections about our democratic system. I think we need to talk to people about what politics delivers at the end of the day what impact that has on your health service, because if people hear we need more TDs,
13: I I think they're going to switch off.
1: (gasps) Do not switch off. But all of this was to take into account our population growth of 8% since 2016. Later, with Claire, Chair of the Electoral Commission, Justice Mary Baker. And as she outlined, they could only work within the parameters of the Constitution.
10: First of all, we are constrained by our terms of reference. And these terms of reference are constitutional restrictions and statutory restrictions the constitution requires that there be a td for between 20 and 30000 people the 20000 doesn't really give rise to any argument anymore because of the size of the population but that that is the limit 30000 people one td for every 30000 people in 20 at uh, 22 the uh, the electoral act set out the various Factors that we should take into account and they're mandatory factors. And one was the preservation of county boundaries. The other was that we could have three, four and five seat constituencies, no six seater. We also had to preserve continuity and we had to observe uh, geographical features, etc. So there were a number of factors and all of those factors play into the way in which we assessed the constituencies, the sizes of the constituencies and where the boundaries lay. Now the constituencies of Tipperary, Leash, Offley and Dublin Fingal will be split
1: in two and there's the creation of a new inter-county constituency
5: of Wicklow-Wexford. But let's split airs. Why not? Wexford-Wicklow? And the naming is already causing a little bit of confusion because we have Wexford now,
10: we have Wicklow and then we have Wicklow-Wexford. Well, we we could we couldn't really call it Middleland. We had to call it something. And why it was called Wicklow Wexford rather than Wexford Wicklow was th- there was no rule about this. It was which one slipped more easily off the tongue. Uh, we could have called it the partly southeast constituency. I mean, you give me a better name. Well, I mean, you have I suppose
5: South Wicklow. North Wexford? That's much too long. Too difficult, Mm. yeah. But you can see how people might get confused because it's it's the repetition of those words. They
10: won't get confused. Nobody gets confused really. I mean, maybe those who don't know about these things get confused. But sligo Leitrim, for example, slips off the tongue now without any difficulty. Wicklow-Wexford will equally do that, I think. I don't think the Wicklow-Wexford new constituency is as such a breach. People in Wicklow aren't voting in Carlow. They're voting in Wicklow, mm-hmm. but with their brethren in Wexford. And if you look at the distribution of, of numbers there in Wicklow, Wexford, they're 45, 55, or whatever. They're broadly speaking two equal cohorts, or very close to equal cohorts of Wicklow people and Wexford people. Wickford,
1: perhaps? And sticking with county boundaries, hats off to the people of Ballyglass in Clare. Here is Art O'Leary, Chief Executive of the Electoral Commission, with Brian on the News at One. You say that a
0: majority, I was at 300 representations out of something over 500 were in relation to county
7: boundaries, correct, is that right? Yeah. But,
0: but but 140 of them were in relation to one electoral division, is yes, that correct? Yes,
7: the, the, the good people of Ballyglass in Clare um, all wrote to us saying that they did not want to be part of the Limerick constituency and they very much wanted to remain in Clare and the Commission, like they did with all of the submissions, paid great care to the submissions as they were laid out. Uh,
1: sticking tight to the Banner County? And politically, how do the parties react to all of this change? Here's Fionn Sheehan of the Irish Independent.
0: Overall, what are the parties making of what they're reading today in this report? Let's start with this point about the three-seaters. It, 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 is, it is going to make it tougher, isn't it, for smaller parties and independents?
12: Yeah, and, and hence the devise of them getting back from the larger parties is that they're pretty happy uh, with, with the outcome, uh, the Green Party already pointing out that that this point that that it, it does benefit uh, larger parties. It would reduce uh, the representation. Bit of crocodile tears there when they're complaining that there aren't six seaters uh, available to the commission to to include. That's their job as the government mm-hmm. and a party in government to ensure that there were six or seven seaters. They didn't do that, so that's the Green Party's. Uh, they can share the blame uh, for 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 that issue. But yeah. As you say, this increase in in the in the tree seaters, particularly in the in obviously coming about because of the creation of these new constituencies uh, in in Tipperary, Fingal, and Wec- Wicklow, Wexford, uh, does mean that it it's likely we will have uh, less representation uh, in in the next door because it is more difficult uh, for an independent or for somebody from a smaller party to mm-hmm. get elected uh, in a smaller constituency.
1: From the news at one and all of this for some
5: Christmas come early. This today, the publication of this, this is the starting gone, isn't it?
14: Big time, yeah. <laughs> uh, everyone is, is jockeying for positions. Uh, I was warned by one figure in a party uh, to watch out for the smoke out of chimneys today. There'll be lots of people blowing smoke uh, saying that they're happy or, or unhappy. But this really is the starting gun. Uh, parties, They've perhaps in some cases like Sinn Féin, haven't even selected in the local elections yet. This now gives them the platform to go ahead to the locals, hope the general is next and, and go from there.
1: A general election. Oh, happy days. Meanwhile, on Lifeline
14: We are knocking knock rock. I'm
1: knocking
4: oh. that part of knock that sells knock
1: Yeah, but well, that's rock. what I mean. sweets. Don't ask. But it did bring us here. Mary O'Callaghan.
10: Kept going and she was down, Where Are you yeah, there, Mary? You? To Mary. She could
3: get or she Ma- to
11: there. She Mary. Mary. Or... Mary. Come out of the dining room you and don't... talk to Joe. You rang Joe. Are you there,
14: Mary? I Mary. I hope that oh, she
11: doesn't
1: say anything about the neighbours around. You know, Mary. But then they have someone... And that went on for quite a while, but we will leave that there. And here is Gavin making a pitch for his own storm with Owen Sherlock, Head of Forecasting, at MetAaron.
11: Are some names just not appropriate for storms? I mean, we, we had a storm Betty
0: recently. Not very scary, is it?
7: Well, it's funny you should say that because analysis was done um, by Princeton University in the States and they found out that names, female name storms, in particular hurricanes, are actually more dangerous Oh. Than names, male name storms. And the rest so of the So a storm was,
11: Samantha would be more scary than a storm Gavin, yes?
7: Well, no, the opposite. People would think storm Samantha, if it was a female name, would be less likely to cause um, damage or injuries than a storm Gavin.
1: We're saying nothing. We could, however, go with Ashling. Yes, shocking segue, I know. But the last in the phenomenally successful series from Emer McLysett and Sarah Breen is now out.
14: When our first book, Oh
2: My God, What a Complete Ashling, came out, the print run, so the entire number of copies they printed was 4,000.
14: But for this book, the print one was 42,000. Wow! So it's like. And they were like, Oh, we'll definitely go into a second printing I was like, <laughs> Oh, will we?
1: It's titled Ashling Ever After, book number five. And there are bits they admit now of both of them in Ashling.
14: I traditionally have always been more of an Ashling than Sarah. <laughs> really, uh, <laughs> but then I think as we've gotten older, Sarah's some of Sarah's more Ashling characteristics have come out. She is obsessed with the weather and whether or not her washing is going to be dry. I do a lot of laundry. Okay, it's very important to me that I don't use the dryer. Yeah, so I am like religious about checking the um, weather forecast. In the second book, there is an instance where um, there is a fire in a house because of an uncleaned lint trap in a dryer and the person in question is afraid to tell Ashling because <laughs> she would never A. use the dryer in June or B. not clear out the lint That's like literally comes from me Yeah, yeah. I'll sometimes text Sarah and be like do you think I should put out my clothes and she'll be like mm, yeah I think you'll be okay
1: You can't beat a good drying day in fairness and one person who might be wanting to get their hands on this that also, Maurice says, isn't over yet you know
14: One of my friends who's a friend from home, I've known him for years, lives in Canada, happened to be on holidays in Vegas. And he sent me a text and he was like, I'm in Vegas, you'll never guess who's by the pool. And I was like, who? And he was like, Leo Vradker. And then he goes, And guess what he's reading? He was reading the, this was a good few years back, he was reading the first, oh my God, what a complete Ashling book. And I was just like, I really don't believe you. So he just said, he said, don't like share the picture around, yeah. the man's on holidays. Uh, but here it is. And I was like, okay, I believe well, you. Well, you do one of
7: those surreptitious selfies yeah. and just <laughs> lean your head to the left a bit and get the,
14: in yeah. the background. Oops, I didn't even know you were there.
7: Uh, so he's a
2: fan. Well, he was back then, I yeah, don't know.
11: Maybe he's, <laughs> maybe he's rushing out to a bookshop this morning
1: no, to get him now. Did, But he'd be crazy not to. Um, <laughs> Ema MacLycett, Sarah Breen and Ashling Ever After. All with Brendan at nine. Well, after all that, let us turn to polyamory. Can you ever have too much love? Well, from the Dock on One, what if she's prettier than me? Exploring the lives of Irish polyamorous individuals, couples, throuples, multiples. It's complicated. I think I way.
14: actually wanted to go and see Oppenheimer, but you're now going to go and see Oppenheimer with her, but you're not going to go and see it with me. So how... Could you not have that, though? With like... Do you have to go and see it twice? Yeah, but
4: could you not have that? That's
5: six hours of your life.
6: <laughs> is that, is that how, what it boils down to? Is it? Or you go to Barbie with one, and Oppenheimer with the other? <laughs>
1: Now that is the dilemma, but polyamory is not an open relationship for sex. No, it involves an emotional connection. Jenny and Alad are a couple in their 40s married with children in primary school. And as they told Mary-Elaine Tynan, this is how they made the decision to try polyamory.
11: Basically, there was one night we were sat, we'd put the kids to bed early and having a glass of wine.
14: I vaguely remember us talking about, you know when you meet someone new? And you know this excitement that you get and this like giddy feeling of this new, like the first time you kiss someone and you don't know if you're gonna kiss or not. And, and it's so, it's so exciting. And the butterflies that you get and just all of the things. And I remember that that conversation being kind of the catalyst for it to happen. The, oh God, wouldn't it be lovely to have that again? And both of us totally agreed. Wouldn't it be lovely? God, yeah, I miss that. I love what we have, but wouldn't that also be lovely?
1: They are now negotiating calendars, date nights and their family's reactions to their decision and negotiating it quite well, it seems. Now, this documentary also featured a focus group, a bunch of people who are not shy about calling out the complexity of it all, at the very least.
0: I wouldn't be one it at all. Like... Dependability. That's a big thing in life, to depend on a partner.
10: If I knew that Joe was being unfaithful and he told me and he was going out with Mrs. A, B or Mrs. C tonight, I wouldn't even know who he would be with. And Mrs. A, B and C would inevitably lead on to Mrs. D, E and F. I really would have no truck with it at all.
1: However, for 20-something Vladimir, originally from Romania, a polyamorous relationship offered more people to love, which he felt could only be a good thing. But it wasn't all mature grown-ups all the time. Oh, no. Here's Mary
10: Elaine. Whenever I ask people about polyamory, the most common concern was about one emotion in particular.
13: Jealousy. For me, the hardest part about polyamory is jealousy. I can be a little bit of a needy baby, (laughs) you know, if I don't get the attention that I want, the moment that I want it, I am going to be a little bit upset. So my partner at the time, yeah, he had another partner as well, and we were going Christmas gift shopping and uh, he was also shopping for his other partner. And then he bought him something. He bought him a coloring book with some really fancy crayons. And like, I identify as a little bit of an artist, and those really fancy crayons got me so jealous, being like, how did you spend all of that money on all of those fancy crayons for him and not for me? I was raging. But then, you know, why keep this inside of me? Like, it doesn't matter. And I spoke out to him in the end. He saw me being uncomfortable. He was like, what's up? Um, Well, you know, you bought those crayons for him, and like, it's a really cute gift, but they're really good crayons, and he's probably never going to end up using them. Meanwhile, I would use them, and I don't have cute crayons. <laughs> So, you know, the most silly thing in the world, that moment when I saw those words, he grabbed my hand, turned me around, went back in the shop, got me even fancier crayons. (laughs) And, you know, it's sort of that thing of, um, really tiny things can make you jealous, but at the same time, really tiny things can help you out of it. No, crayons doesn't really matter, but it made me feel really loved and appreciated, which, you know, I already was, I just wasn't feeling that at that exact moment in time.
1: And just before you rush off thinking this might be the answer to all of your relationship ennui, have a listen to this.
10: I suppose a lot of people would think that it's like wanting to have your cake and eat it. Oh, that phrase. Having your cake and eating it. You can have your cake and eat it. Ruth, the polyamorous who's a counsellor, says it totally misses the point. It's just such a
2: glib, judgmental way of looking at something that is very hard work. The hard work is in being real with your feelings and facing the things that are difficult and then communicating that to the multiple people in your life. That is not having your cake and eating it. (laughs) The emotional work that's involved in being poly was a huge exploration in what is a relationship or what is the end of a relationship? Oh, actually, how do I feel about myself? How do I feel about sex? How do I communicate about sex? Every question had another hundred questions behind it. It's not easy. And
1: that's even before you get in to this bit.
14: I went to my GP and I was like, oh, do you know what? I kind of thought I just want to tell her because she's really nice and really sound and she's like our age and, and everything. And so I just... Said, I just want to tell you this, and she was like, Oh, right, okay. And then she went, I just have one question, and I was like, Oh, god, here we go. Just where do you find the time? And I was like, Yeah, that's what everyone asks. <laughs> like, that is
8: the thing where do you find the time
1: from the Dark On One? So much food for thought. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.
5: So
8: now we're